Well, for uh, you that might be here for the first time, I want to give you a special uh, thanks for being here with us. Uh, hope you feel comfortable and hope maybe this will become something you'll anticipate, look forward to each and every week. And for our online family, which usually runs about 180 to 200 people now, uh, we want you to feel welcome and completely a part of things. So we're starting a new series, and the new series is about destiny. And so let's just start by asking this question. What is your destiny? I mean, how, how would you answer that? Do you maybe think to yourself, I, I don't even know if I have a destiny. I've never felt anything about me personally having a destiny. Maybe you're even sitting there thinking, I, I, I think I know what destiny means, but I'm not exactly sure. So let's go with a definition. Destiny, the things that you will do or the type of person you will become in the future. So that, that's what we're looking at toward destiny. Now, when we go to God's Word, the revelation that He's given about Himself, the truth about Himself, and the truth about life, He specifically says in numerous places, but in two that I'm going to point you to, that each and every human being has a God-given destiny. In fact, this gets into the whole notion of what is the purpose of life? And most people that you will ever meet, you've heard me say this many times, most people that you will ever meet have absolutely no purpose no clear purpose in mind as far as their life. I mean, typically, if you ask somebody, hey, what's the purpose of your life? What's your destiny? What's your purpose? They would say something like, well, you know, I just want to be happy, man. I don't know. You know that's, that's all I know. I just want to be happy. The vision or the destiny or the purpose, if you have a clear picture and if you believe it to your core, what the purpose of your existence on this planet is, it will become an interpretive grid through which you will be able to look at each and every circumstance you ever encounter in life, and you will be able to see it in a positive way, even the most difficult things in life, as opposed to feeling like life is just random, nothing makes sense, and you've got to scratch out the little bit of happiness that you can while you can. Here's a couple of verses from the New Testament book of Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul is writing to followers of Christ living in Ephesus, and it gives us a clear picture of this divine given destiny. Ephesians 4.13, it says, we must become like a, what kind of person? Mature person. But what is a mature person like? We must grow until we become like, what does it say? Like Christ. That's what it means to be mature as a human being. And have all of his what? Do you realize that's your destiny? Do you realize that's the destiny of every human being? That this life is meant to be a journey to destiny. And the destiny is that you and I become a completely mature human being. And a completely mature human being looks just like Christ. Your unique personality, my unique personality, but a Christ-like version of it. That is meant to be the purpose, the driving force, the interpretive grid for every human life. Here's another verse that just kind of adds to this. It says... And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the what? The authority of Christ. Everything. Everything in where? Heaven and where? So the destiny of the universe, which includes us, is that everything in the universe one day is going to be brought back together into harmony with Christ. And Christ is going to rule and reign forever. Now, in a series that I did a while back called The Big Picture, we, we put it together in a phrase like this. God's big plan is the development of an eternal family of 
Christ-like beings, that was the first part of that destiny we saw, united in loving devotion to Christ and one another. That's the second part, living under Christ's authority forever. That is your divinely given destiny and this life is meant to be looked upon as a developmental journey if you are looking upon this life in any other way i can assure you you're going to end up confused you're going to end up frustrated you're going to end up very disappointed and you won't be very productive or effective either this life is a developmental journey it is a it is a journey toward destiny now we're going to fixate for the next six weeks on one particular character in Scripture. He's kind of a famous character, and his name is Moses. And uh, Moses is unique for a lot, in a lot of ways. You know, he is the one that was uh, the leader to giving birth to the nation of Israel, so to speak. Uh, he's the one that God started to communicate his truth to and have it put down in written form. It all started with Moses. He's unique in that he appears some 1,500 years after his death, quite alive on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 with Jesus along with Elisha or Elijah, the prophet who had left the earth about 800 years prior. And so we know that Moses plays a key role in the overarching plans of God. One other little thing about Moses in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says something very interesting about him. It says that Moses, Moses who is this extraordinary leader. You know, he, he bursts this nation. He leads this nation for 40 years. But this is what God points out about him. He says, Moses was the most humble man on the planet. Now, humility has not been looked upon as a virtue through most of human history. And frankly, it's not looked upon as much of a virtue today. But in the sight of God, humility is the key. It's the touch point. If God finds a teachable, humble heart in any of us, it is extraordinary what he can do. It's extraordinary what he wants to do in us and through us. So we're going to turn now to page 62 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair. And we're going to be in the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible. It'll be chapter 3 is where we'll start. And we want to, we want to look at what it's, what it's like when you accept this vision, this destiny that God has given. And in chapter Three, uh, as you're getting there, I'll kind of give you a little background. Uh, it says in the earlier chapters in Exodus, it says that the Pharaoh that had been friends with Joseph had died and another Pharaoh had come on the scene and he was starting to treat the Israelites very poorly because the Israelites were multiplying faster than the Egyptians. They were having many, many more children. And the Egyptians were becoming fearful that their population was so large that if some kind of a war started, the Israelites might turn against them and they would be in terrible situation. So the pharaohs start telling the midwives, you know, to, to take the male children and kill them when they're born. And of course, the, these Hebrew women, they're, they're horrified at this. They don't want to do this. As far as we know, some did, some did not. And the story goes, maybe most of you are familiar with it. If, if, have, you, have you ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments? Let me just ask you that. And if you haven't, you should see it. And don't, don't, don't look at the new version. Don't look at these cheesy new versions. Go back to the 1960, uh, maybe, maybe 1959 version. Charlton Heston is the only true Moses. The rest of them are... <laughs> I even like the special effects in the old one better. <laughs> but uh, Moses is one of these babies that is meant to be killed, but instead his mother hides him for a couple months and then takes him down to the Nile River, puts him in a basket. It's covered with pitch and floated off at just the right time. 
she seems to know that Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river at this time, and maybe you know the story. She finds the baby, takes it, adopts it as her own, and then ends up giving it back to Moses' real mother to nurse until, you know, that stage is passed. So that's the earliest part of, of this particular story. Now we're going to pick up Moses is, you know, uh, uh, an adult now. In fact, I'll add one more piece. When he becomes 40 years old, and we learn this from the book of Acts chapter 7, when he's 40 years old, he goes out and he sees an Israelite being oppressed by an Egyptian. They were forced to labor, you know, to build the pyramids and various things of that nature. And uh, he tries to defend this Israelite and he ends up killing the Egyptian, a fellow Egyptian. Now, mind you, he's a prince. He's, he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's a, he's a big shot in Egypt and has been all of his life. And he kills this fellow Egyptian. Now, the book of Acts tells us something interesting. It says that he killed the Egyptian thinking that the Israelite people would know that it was he that was meant to bring them back to God, to deliver them. So he had this in his mind for some reason at age 40. Well, he goes the next day and the Israelites are having an argument and he tries to separate them. He says, hey, your brothers, don't fight with one another. And they turn on him and they say, oh, what are you going to do, kill us too? And at that point, he knows that it's not a secret. He had buried this guy he killed in the sand. And so Pharaoh then says he's going to get Moses and kill him, and he runs. And he lives the next 40 years of his life in a place called Midian. It's obscure, and he lives in obscurity for 40 more years. He's just a shepherd. That's it. Every day, what are the sheep going to eat today? Every day, do the sheep need fixing today? Every day, does the sheep need protecting today? What are you going to do tomorrow, Moses? I'm going to feed the sheep. I'm going to water the sheep. What are you going to do the next day? 40 years of monotonous, obscure living. So here's the thing I want you to start with. And <laughs> this is going to be a weird question. And I don't know that we have many in here. Maybe if you're here, you don't even want to do this. Is there anybody in here 80 years older or, or older? Can I see your hands? Can somebody help that person raise their hand? <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to understand something. This man's story, his life, his ministry, if you want to look at that, his time of maximum effectiveness, it started at age 80. <laughs> so you're not too late. You might be sitting there, and I, I meet this with people a lot of times. They, they feel so bad. Oh, Randy, I feel like I've just wasted so many years of my life. Are you 80? <laughs> you know, because evidently God thinks that's a good time to start. He goes 40 more years. He lives to be 120. It says of Moses, it says that when he died, he still had his full vigor. That's the run I want, man. I want full vigor and just go out quickly, you know? <laughs> anyway, let's pick up in chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 9. We'll take a break, and then we'll go to some other verses once again. Chapter 3. Now, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to the mountain of God, to Horeb. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. He looked, and the bush was ablaze with fire, but it was not being consumed. So Moses thought, I will turn aside to see this amazing sight. Why does this bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush, and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
God said, do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He added, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at who? You notice it started off, it said the angel of the Lord was in the bush. Then it switches, it says God was in the bush. It says that God spoke to him and he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard the cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their, what's the word? Sorrows. I know their sorrows. Pause for just a minute. Do you think, do you think the Israelites had any idea that God knew their affliction, that he had heard their crying and that he knew their sorrows. Do you think they had any notion of it all? They're being beaten by the Egyptians. They're being worked like dogs. They're being oppressed. Their sons are being murdered at birth. Do you think the Israelites had any idea that God saw their affliction, that he heard them when they cried, and he knew about their personal sorrows? The likelihood is they had no notion of it at all, and I'll bet that's true for some of us. I'll bet you, sometimes you feel completely alone with your unique affliction, whatever it might be. I'll bet you, you feel like when you cry, nobody knows, nobody hears your tears, nobody sees your tears. They don't maybe matter to anybody but you. And your unique sorrows, you might feel sometimes like you're just bearing them all alone. And the first thing that God reveals to Moses is, First of all, he knew Moses. He knew his name. And God knows your name and my name. He knows us personally. He knows our feelings. He knows our journey. He knows our pain. He knows our sorrows. And all of it matters to him. That might be the whole message for somebody in here today. But this was what Moses was all of a sudden learning at age 80. Let's pick back up. Verse 8. He says, I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a land that is good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Mosquito Bites. (laughs) Verse 9. And now indeed the cry of the Israelites has come to me. And I've also seen how severely the Egyptians oppressed them. So, and I'll, 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 I'll stop there because that's part, part two. I, I was tempted to go to verse 10. Don't want to do that. So let's just pause. What's happening here to Moses? He's 80 years old. As far as we can tell, he hasn't had much of a thought about God. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But he certainly doesn't appear. He doesn't give any indication that he ever thought God was thinking of him as he's hiding out for 40 years in obscurity in Midian. And so he's coming to a place of enlightenment. This is an experience that is common to human beings. There comes a season in lives where we are enlightened. We are awakened. We are awakened to the fact that God is real, that he is present, that he is personal that he knows us, that he knows others, that he is highly engaged in the affairs of mankind, though it doesn't look like it or feel like it to we that are living down here sometimes. He knows your name. He knows your story. 
He's got a plan. Moses is 80 years old. He had no notion, evidently, that God had a specific, unique plan for him, a very big plan. But he did. And maybe sometimes we feel like we wonder if God sees us at all. Maybe we feel like I'm, I'm not gifted enough, I'm not talented enough, I, I'm, not, I'm not this, I'm not that. And I wonder if he even knows my name. I, I know that God loves me, some of us feel like. I know that he loves me generically. You know, it's kind of like he loves the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But does, do you know, do you know that he loves you? It's a big difference. It's a big difference in just knowing that God kind of generically loves everybody. But I'm going to tell you, man, when you come to that portion in life where all of a sudden you get up close and personal with God and it can happen in a lot of different ways and this awareness comes to you that God, first of all, knows your name, has always been involved with you in your story and that he cares. He cares about your affliction. He cares about your crying, your tears. He cares about your sorrows. That's a big kind of demarcation point in a human's life when God becomes personal when God becomes real when you recognize that he is engaged it is it is a time of big big awakening in the life of a human being and maybe some of you can think back and it comes in all sorts of ways now with Moses it was a burning bush with others of us it might be that you went through a certain crisis and all of a sudden you had this this awareness that you couldn't quite put your finger up, that God was somehow trying to get your attention just as he was trying to get Moses' attention through the burning bush. He maybe tried to get your attention through other means, but you knew, you sensed it. Somehow God was trying to awaken you. He was trying to get you to recognize he's not just a God in a generic sense. He's your God. And, and, he, and he, wants, he wants you to get up close and personal. He, he wants to whisper your name. And he wants you to respond. That's the thing that our God waits for. He won't coerce us. He won't intimidate us. He won't force us. He won't barge into our life. But, but he will pick those moments when he feels like we're going to be the most receptive. Evidently for Moses, that was not till 80. And then he tries to enlighten us, awaken us to the truth came across this really f interesting new gadget. Some of you may want this. This is an alarm clock. It doesn't look like a clock, but it is. You put this right over the top of your bed, and this thing is able to take your unique body temperature so that when you set the alarm on this thing, at the proper time, it focuses like a, it's like a laser beam of sound and light, it's not like a laser beam going to burn your skin off or anything, but, but it's, it's like sunlight. But, but here's the thing, yeah, like, so you're, you're laying with your husband or your wife, but this alarm points just at you and shoots off this beam of sound and beam of light just to you. Your spouse is sitting there sound asleep, and they're, they're glad that you're not waking them up with that noisy alarm. So you may want to get this thing. It's called Wakey by the Lucera Company Labs. Now, the thing that I loved about this is it just reminds me, I mean, I've watched God work in people's lives now for 45 years, and it just reminds me the way God works. It's just like right now today, I don't have the slightest doubt in my mind, that unique divine alarm, that unique divine beam of sound and light is landing on some of you. It might land on you, and it might not land on you. It might land on that person, and not that, but we just never know. It's not that God isn't seeking us all, but he knows that some of us are just not ready to wake up. 
And maybe you can think back in your life that, that you know the truth be told. If someone would have came to you and talked to you about the love of God, the goodness of God, his wisdom, and how we can't live apart from him, we're never fully human, never fully alive, you would have just shrugged it off. You wouldn't have wanted to hear it. You would have considered it a nuisance. But then something changed. It was some kind of a burning bush got your attention. And suddenly this God that was afar, you maybe always believed in him, but he was afar, he was not personal. All of a sudden he became very real to you. And you could tell, you could tell he knew you and he wanted you to know him. Maybe you can remember that time in your life. For me, it was age 23. I remember it very clearly. It was a, a host of events that led up to it, but I can remember the culminating point. Listen to this verse from the book of Romans, and this to me has become one of the more fascinating verses in the New Testament. When I was doing a series a while back, uh, I emphasized this, this verse because... It's one of those verses, it's easy to just read the shell of it and miss the the powerful interior content. It says, in reality, the truth of God is known instinctively, for God has embedded this knowledge inside every human heart. The truth of God is known instinctively by humans. It's been embedded in our heart. It goes on. For ever since the creation of the universe, His invisible qualities... Both his eternal power and his divine nature have been, what? Clearly seen. Invisible qualities, clearly seen. How? Because they can be, what is that word? Understood. We're talking observation and reasoning. Observation and reasoning. God-given capacities. They can be understood from what has been made. Therefore, they have no excuse. The verse is saying, if you unpack it, that because we can observe the universe and all creation, and particularly other humans, we can observe human life, we can literally, we literally know that God is there, and we not only know that God is there, we know what He's like. We know that He's like Christ. You say, Randy, how do you get all that from one verse? Well, okay, if I can observe human beings, I know that some human beings are very kind and very loving and very good, and so my rational capacities tell me that the creator would have to be better than the best, kinder than the kindest, more loving than the most loving, more gentle than the most gentle, more forgiving than the most forgiving. And I know that it would be below him to be evil because evil is inferior. Evil is stupidity. Evil is attached to good. It can't even exist without good. And so I would know that my creator, just from observation of creation, is real, is personal, and is Christ-like. It's a powerful thing. So God has revealed himself and is revealing himself all the time to everyone. So please don't get this notion that you have to wait for a specific burning bush because the burning bush is every time you walk outside and you look up in the sky. The burning bush is every time you look in the mirror and see your own reflection. Your burning bush is every time you hear a child laugh. It's the burning bush. He's there and he reveals himself to all of us rather continuously in the book of acts chapter 17 the apostle paul was talking to some greek philosophers and he says you know god's divided humanity amongst nations but he did this so that people could find him and then he goes on and says this he says he's done this so that every person would long for god god wants to be wanted he will not force himself on us he will not coerce he respects the free will that he gave us he, did this, he has done this so that each person would long for God and feel their way to Him and find Him. For He is the God who is what? He's easy to discover. He's there and we know it. We know it. But He still waits. He waits. 
You know, Moses could have ran from the burning bush. When he heard God's voice, he could have said, you know, I, I, this is too much. I'm not nervous. It's not the right season in my life. I don't want it. But he stood there and he conversed with God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says this about God. It says, he wants all humanity to be delivered. The notion is delivered from sin, which is self-destructive living. He wants all humanity to be delivered and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. It's not until we come to know who God is and what he's like that the power of reckless, self-centered, self-destructive living can be broken. It's when we know that he loves us more than we love ourselves, when we know that he knows us and he wants what's best for us, and that any time he leads us, it is only for our highest good. That breaks the power of living desperately, foolishly, recklessly. We need to come to the full knowledge of the truth about our God and the truth about life, and that frees us. It frees us from our sin. So we see Moses going through this unique time of spiritual enlightenment, that's where accepting a vision always starts. It comes to that place where you're now personal. God is not just the God, the generic. He's personal, and he's interacting with you, and he's trying to bring you close to himself. And as I said, maybe some of you can remember that portion in your own life. Interesting thing I came across, they did a study with some athletes, and they found that athletes have something. These, these are elite athletes, the, the highest level athletes. They have something that researchers are calling the quiet eye and, and here's the way they explain it. researchers have now identified some of the common mental processes that mark out elite athletes one of the most intriguing aspects appears to be a phenomenon known as the quiet eye it goes on kinesiologist dr joan vickers began to suspect the secret of extraordinary performance lay in the way that elite athletes see the world now when you read up on this what it's what they found is this Athletes have the ability to focus in a way that most of us in this room do not. And to focus longer and to literally block everything else out. And this is why under pressure and in high performance uh, challenges and all, they can come through again and again. And they seem to thrive on it. This is why when, you know, the average person goes to hit a ball or hit a golf ball or something like that, they have a heck of a time and these people do it perfectly again and again. They have this focus. Their eyes just, just focus differently, block everything else out. When the time, when the time of enlightenment comes, you've got to hear this because it's happening in some of your lives. When the time of enlightenment comes, when God whispers your name, when God gives you your burning bush moment, you need a quiet eye. You need, you need to block everything else out because your life, your life is about to change if you want it to. You need to be willing to put other things aside and have a quiet eye, a, a quiet focus, a a complete focus on this God who is now wanting to become up close and personal with you. And we see Moses doing that. We see Moses listening, Moses conversing. Now the second stage after enlightenment is enlistment, and it can be a little more difficult. In between, let me share four principles, four critical principles about this time of, ex or this experience of accepting vision, accepting your God-given destiny. Here we, here we go. Number one, truth about the vision. The vision initially, might initially be both fascinating and confusing. 
Moses has his vision of this bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned. What a picture of God. He destroys all that is useless, all that is, that is you know, not right, but he doesn't destroy something that's alive and good. The vision might initially be both fascinating and confusing. You might have something going on in your life that, that's fascinating. It's drawing you, but it's also confusing to you. You're not really sure what's going on. Second truth about a vision. The vision causes you to see God and yourself differently. All of a sudden, you are not thinking the way you previously had about God. Moses gets this picture of God that he never had before, that he's personal, that he's engaged, that he knows about the sufferings of human beings, that he cares about the sufferings, that he's compassionate and caring and good. The vision causes you to see God and yourself differently. Moses had not given any thought whatsoever that God might have wanted to reveal himself to him and work through him. But all of a sudden, he realizes, wow, God knows and wants to work with me. Number three, truth about a vision. The vision, (laughs) and this is the one we don't like too much. You'll see this when we go back to Scripture in, in Exodus. The vision will interrupt the entire trajectory of your life. That means change. That means entire change in many cases. And that's scary business for us. Even stabilized mediocrity can be appealing, but change, uncertainty, even if we know that it's got God behind it, it's hard work to change. How many would agree it is hard work to change? See your hands? Yeah. And so this vision, when God gives you this vision of who he is, who you are, what his plan is pertaining to you, It'll interrupt the trajectory of your life. Moses' life will change forever. For the next 40 years, 40 years of his life, he lives to be 120, dies, the scripture says, with full vigor. That's, that's the ride I want. Um, he, <laughs> he, uh, he's, he's completely, completely absorbed in activity that he had never experienced before in his entire life. Changed the trajectory of his life. Fourth truth. The vision may feel uncomfortable or even, what is the word? Impossible. Impossible for you. You'll see that in a minute with Moses. Let's go back to Scripture now. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. Up to this point, God has just been expressing to Moses his feeling about the people in, in Egypt. Verse 10. So now, go, and I will send, what is the word? You. You, uh, you guys with me? How, how many are in Exodus? Uh, it's still there. Can I see your hands? Okay, okay. Let's try this one more time. <laughs> so now go, and I will send you. You got to put your name on that. God just keeps sending people, generation after generation. Now, let me make it more clear. If you have put your trust in Christ, and you are his follower... And you don't give a rip what the rest of the world does. You know in your core, I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life fully. And I'm going to follow him freely. There's no coercion on me. I'm following him because I want to follow him. And I'm going to follow him forever. If you know that describes you, you've put your trust in Christ. And you trust him so much that you're going to follow him fully, freely, and forever. Can I see your hands? I'm actually asking you to do this. Can I see your hand? Okay, for you that had your hands in the air. God is sending you. He's sending you by name. He's telling you go. He's saying go. He's saying go. He's saying go. I've got somebody I want to send you to. I've got somebody I want to reveal myself to through you. I just need you to go. Will you go? 
for me? Listen what the conversation, how it goes from here. So he tells Moses, I mean, up to this point, it was, it was easy breezy for Moses. But now all of a sudden he says, go, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses responds, verse 11. You're going to see five uncomfortable reactions from Moses to this. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He's saying, come on, come on, God. Why? Who, who am I? I mean, I'm just an ordinary, I've been, I've been playing with sheep for 40 years. I get up, I count the sheep. I mean, this is all I do. Who am I to do? You're talking leading a nation. Come on, come on. So he feels very uncomfortable with this. It was all good up until that point when he said, no, 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 I want you to do it. Verse 12, he replied, surely. Now God's, God's kind of helping him through this. God says, says, surely I will be with you. And this will be the sign that, you, that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you and they will serve God on this mountain. Remember, he was at the Mount of Horeb. Verse 13, uncomfortable reaction of Moses, number two. Moses said to God, okay, if I go to the Israelites and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What should I say to them? He's saying, I don't have enough knowledge about you, God. If I go to these people... First of all, they're not going to pay any attention to me. I'm an 80-year-old man. I've been in obscurity for 40 years, but, but I don't know enough about you. They're going to ask me, who, are, who is he? Who is this God that sent you? And here's God's response, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, you must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, you must say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial from generation to generation. Let's drop down to verse 20. No, I'm sorry, let's, let's drop down to chapter 4, and we'll see uncomfortable reaction number 3. Moses answered again, And if they do not believe me or pay attention to me but say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So here's his third uncomfortable reaction. He says, I'm going to go to these people. I'm a total stranger. I'm 80 years old. And I'm going to tell them, okay, God sent me to you to bring you out. And they're going to say, we don't believe that. We're not buying that. Who are you anyway? We don't believe it. So God supplies resource again. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Now what he had in his hand was a staff, his shepherd's staff. He said, a staff? The Lord said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it, threw it to the ground, and it became a snake. And I love this part. And Moses ran from it. How many of you, be honest, the story would have ended right there. <laughs> story would have ended. Because what God says to him next, get this, just get this. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and grab it by the tail. Ha! <laughs> How many of you, story ends, man, I'm not doing it. See your hands? Not doing it. Not grabbing the snake by the tail or the head or in any way. Not grabbing the snake. <laughs> but he does. And, of course, it transforms back to the staff. So God is saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to supply you with supernatural credibility so that the people will see that 
You are my messenger. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide you what you need is the message God keeps giving him. Look at verse 6. Well, actually, I'll, I'll just tell you what happens. And he also tells him, he says, here's another little trick you can use, Moses. Put your hand, hand in your jacket. And he puts his hand in his jacket. And it comes out. It's full of leprosy. Not a good thing. And so God says, oh, okay, it's okay. Put it back. Put it back in. And it goes away. He says, that's another thing you can show the Egyptians if they don't believe you. Okay. Then let's drop down to uh, verse uh, actually, he says he'll also be able to turn uh, the water to blood. So he gives him three signs he can do. Let's go to verse 10. And we see Moses' fourth uncomfortable reaction. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not an eloquent man, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am, sl- I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So here he's basically saying, he's saying, Look, I'm not a good communicator. I, I'm not, I'm just, I fumble over my words. He might have even been saying, I, I have a stuttering problem. It's a little difficult to tell from the language. But he definitely had some kind of communication problem. He's saying, I, I'm not the guy. You, you got you to get a better communicator than this. The Lord's response once again. The Lord said to him, who gave a mouth to man? Or who makes a person mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So now go and I will be with your mouth and will teach you what you must say and then Moses final uncomfortable his fifth uncomfortable reaction Moses said oh my lord please send anyone else whom you wish to send Moses just saying come on God just there's got to be somebody better than me please I don't care who it is just send someone else I don't want to do this because he felt so inadequate so intimidated so uncomfortable Maybe when you get a clear picture in your mind of who it is that God wants to help you become and what it is that he wants you to do, maybe you feel, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I'm I'm not comfortable with this. It takes me out of my comfort zone. Listen, when God enlightens you and when you are given his vision for your life, it will always make you feel uncomfortable. And it will always require me and you to come out of our comfort zone it will always require us to march into a place where we have to trust God for courage for wisdom for resources for abilities for capacities that we ourselves do not at present have that's just part of his developmental journey the way it works now Moses finally he says okay I'm in and that's the critical juncture for us once we're enlightened Will we enlist? Will we say, yes, send me. Yes, I will be your man. I will be your woman. I will be your spokesman. I will be your go-between. In Acts chapter 20, we see the perfect attitude from the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, But whether I live or die is not important, for I don't see my life as indispensable. It's more important for me to fulfill my, what? Destiny. Destiny. Journey to destiny. And to finish the ministry, my Lord Jesus has assigned to me. Paul is saying, look, you know, I'm not indispensable. It doesn't matter. If I live, I die, whatever. I'm just focused on fulfilling what God intended me to fulfill and reaching his destiny for my life. A guy named David Brooks had a really, really good quote. I'm sure it's going to be there. It is. He's author and columnist of the New York Times. He says, most successful young people don't look inside and then plan a life. Listen to that carefully. Most young people don't look inside and plan a life. They look outside and find a need or what? God's call 
which summons their life. He goes on. People on the road to character growth, developmental journey, do not find their vocations by asking, what do I want from life? They ask, what is life asking of me? How can I match my intrinsic talent with one of the world's deepest needs? It's an other orientation. God says to Moses, I'm sending you to them. I'm sending you to help them. I'm sending you to deliver them. I'm sending you to go fight with Pharaoh for them. It's not going to be easy. He tells Moses, he says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I'm going to have to intervene and I'm going to have to do a lot of miracles to get this off. But you go and you keep going and I'm going to tell you what to say. And if you're that intimidated, I'm going to get, let your brother Aaron, who is three years older than you, I'm going to let him be your spokesman. I'll talk to you, Moses. And then you tell Aaron and Aaron can talk to Pharaoh but you need to get this going. And so he gets involved. Ephesians chapter 2, it says of us, it says, God's grace, his unmerited mercy and favor, it saved us because of our faith. It's when we put our trust in Christ, our creator, our faith, our trust, we are reconciled to God. Now he can start to work in us and through us, but it's God's grace. Your salvation doesn't come from anything you do, it's God's gift. But then it goes on in verse 10. We have become his poetry. Once we put our trust in Christ, become his follower, we become God's poetry, a recreated, recreated, a born again, a regenerated, a divinely, with the divine seed in us, a recreated people that will fulfill the what? Destiny he has given each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one. Even before we were born, God planned in advance our what? Destiny and the good works we should do to fulfill it. Now, we don't do the good works to earn a standing with God. We have a standing with God once we return to Him in trust. We're freely forgiven. We're given eternal life. His Spirit starts to work in us. But then, once we come alive spiritually, we're reconnected with Christ our Creator, there's plenty of good works that God has prepared in advance. They're unique for you, unique for you, unique for you, unique for me. Moses had a unique ministry and God always enables what he calls us to do. I mean, he's given each of us different experiences in life. He's given us different talents. He's given us spiritual gifts if we're followers of Christ. He's given us different uh, divine capacities to understand things. He's given us things that we can use to uh, communicate Christ to others that another person might not have. So we just have to, we have to figure out what is our temperament? How do we work best? What is God calling us to do? But he might call us to do something that's very uncomfortable initially until we get at it i'm gonna close with a simple story there's a lady named linda claire and she's from eugene oregon and she's a christ follower and she was feeling that uh her life was kind of monotonous that it was not probably hitting the the great divine destiny target that it should be and she just wondered you know was she even pleasing to god and what she did by vocation was that she babysat. She was a babysitter. You know, that's the way she made some income. And so she was feeling down, down, down on herself again and again that she was, you know, not doing something real earth-shattering and significant for God. And then one day she had this one parent that came to her, and the parent was just gleaming. It was the, the father of a child. And he said, you know what? Since we've been bringing our child to you, a little, little four-year-old child, our child prays over meals and and leads us as a family in praying over meals and, and is talking to us about jesus and the man says to her he says I, i'd like to go to your church if that would be okay and she's of course 
yes, that would be wonderful. She said that was a change. That was, that was a big change in the way she saw herself and her divine destiny and her ministry and, and her mission. She now says to people when they ask, what, are, what do you do? She says, I babysit for the Lord. <laughs> I babysit for the Lord. It's, it's not something grandiose. We're not all called to be Moseses and lead a whole nation. But we are absolutely called and equipped to do something. Once we've trusted in Christ, been reconciled to God, now he wants to get us in a developmental journey. And the developmental journey, listen, be careful. It's always going to mean serving somebody. It's always going to mean rolling up your sleeves and serving. It might be just one person. It might be your family. It, it, you know, I can't say what it is for you. That's the part that's unique and different for each of us. But you can bet on this. It's going to take you out of yourself. It's going to cleanse you progressively of our selfishness. It's going to stretch us to learn to give and to serve and to care for others. That's always part of this developmental journey. So, let's just ask this. Have you had your time, your burning bush moment? Have you had that time where you and God got up close and personal? Have you had that time where you made a mature decision to say, I'm going to put my trust in Christ, the one that created the universe and the one that loved me enough to die on the cross for my sin, to free me from my sin? Have you had that time where you said, yes, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I'm becoming his follower for the rest of my days. Have you managed that time in your life? Secondly, are you all in? I mean, are you all in? Are you convinced that this life is a developmental journey? Are you convinced that God wants us in this life to be ever-developing, to become more like Christ, and to do the Christ-like deeds that God has prepared in advance for us to do? Are you convinced that God has a unique destiny for you? It may be large, it may be global, it may be very small with just one person. doesn't matter what it is. God doesn't call us all to do the same thing. He does call us all to be faithful. Have you enlisted? Are you available? Are you available to do what's maybe very uncomfortable? Maybe God's calling you to do something that you don't really want to do, but you sense this is what he's called me to do, and so I will. So I will go. I don't know which part of this message may be the most applicable to you, but I, but I just hope that you'll do like Moses and become a humble, teachable person. He was 80. It's not too late to learn. He was 80. Not too late for anybody in this room. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in the life of this man Moses. It encourages us. It expands our vision. And I just pray that you'll help each of us to know that just as sure as you had a divine destiny for Moses, you have a divine destiny for us. Help us to get close enough to you that we can, we can get clarity on your plan for us. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.